The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Don't panic, but prepare for disruption. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, February 27th, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. February 27th, part one, a virus goes viral. It is difficult to wrap our heads around the new coronavirus and what it might mean to us and what a pandemic is. From what we know so far, it would be just as wrong to panic about the COVID-19 coronavirus as it would be to fail to act quickly. Experts say the planet is quickly approaching a tipping point at which the virus reaches the pandemic level. Although we've already met two of the three criteria for that, there is no universal threshold for pandemic. When a disease spreads locally or regionally, it's an epidemic. When it spreads across a nation, a continent, or the world, it's a pandemic. If a pandemic is declared, it's about geography. The word pandemic has nothing to do with the seriousness of the disease. Although it can range from mild to severe, one immunologist says that for 95% of the population, the coronavirus will feel like a cold. It is, in fact, a cousin of the common cold, which is also in the coronavirus family. COVID-19, however, is a new or novel virus. For 5% of us, the most vulnerable among us, the elderly and those with some pre-existing conditions, it can be very serious. And for 2.5% of us, it will be deadly. And it is extremely contagious, spread by coughs, sneezes, and contaminated surfaces. Each infected person is likely to infect two to three other people based on the numbers so far. Worldwide, the body count could be very high, and the effects on the world's economy could be dramatic, as we witnessed in Monday's 1,000-point drop in the stock market, followed by Tuesday's 900-point drop. With some of the world's factories shut down from coronavirus epidemics and with travel restrictions in place, business is already hurting. In Chicago, Chinese restaurants say business has been cut in half by fear of the virus and the fact that it originated in and has taken its biggest toll in China. The State Department says Russia is using social media to ramp up this fear and to blame the virus on the United States. Americans are currently considered at low risk for getting the virus, but experts say that could change quickly. The wind has already shifted. As of Tuesday morning, there were more new coronavirus cases outside of China than within. Efforts to contain the virus to China have failed. There were cases now in Switzerland, Austria, and Spain. By yesterday, a man had carried the virus from the outbreak in Italy to Brazil, bringing the virus to Latin America. The first American soldier stationed in South Korea has the virus and is now isolated from our other troops there. And now a Northern California man has contracted the COVID-19 virus, and the CDC doesn't know how, since the man has not traveled abroad and had not come in contact with any known patients. This may be the first case of community spread of the virus here in the U.S. The Solano County man is now being treated in Sacramento. People who've recovered from the virus have gotten reinfected, indicating that COVID-19 could become a seasonal illness like the cold or the flu. It's now projected that worldwide 400,000 people may die. Because of all these developments, a government health official was warning that the spread of this coronavirus here appears inevitable. Quoting the CDC's top respiratory disease official, it's not a question of if this will happen, but when this will happen, and how many people in this country will have severe illnesses. The government scientist said she had told her own children to prepare for what's coming, and she advised schools to make a plan in case the virus spreads to their area, to split classes into smaller classes, or to close completely, or to use interactive video to keep the kids learning at home. Japan has already closed its schools nationwide for the entire month of March. The CDC expert advises American businesses in affected areas to close or to split the workers into smaller groups or find ways for the employees to work at home. She recommends that if the virus spreads as she expects, patients should delay surgeries that are not absolutely necessary. Severe disruptions. And she was backed by other officials from the CDC and from the National Institutes of Health. Meanwhile, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar was telling a Senate panel, we cannot hermetically seal off the United States to a virus, and we need to be realistic about that. Azar was suddenly on the White House radar as a, another possible troublemaker. The stock market plunged some more, ending its worst day in the U.S. in two years. 
None of this played well at the White House because it contradicted Trump's insistence that everything's under control. By afternoon, the principal deputy director of the CDC had called together reporters for a previously unscheduled news conference to say, we believe the immediate risk here in the United States remains low and we're working hard to keep that risk low. But that news conference barely made a ripple in the flood of headlines about the virus and the government's possible lack of preparedness. The president's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, tried to help the boss, telling investors that while the market was down by 1,032 points, this one-day dip would be the perfect time to buy. Trump chimed in via Twitter from India with much the same message. They could not have been more wrong. The next day, stocks dropped another 879 points. If you took the Trump administration's rosy investment advice, you lost money. Trump got back from India, and he was angry about how all this was playing out. Publicly, he focused his scorn on the news media, calling NBC, CNN, and MSNBC fake news and accusing them of scaremongering to intentionally tank the stock market. The subtext here is that Trump believes the media is going for his newly acquired Achilles heel, a shaky Wall Street. Even though the warnings came from the CDC and the media had simply passed them along, it was all fake to Trump. It was also stepping on his re-election mojo. By 6 a.m. yesterday, Trump was tweeting angrily, not about the lack of preparedness, but about the media that had reported it. He promised a 6 p.m. news conference and said he'd be bringing CDC and other officials with him. Trump arrived nearly 40 minutes late to unleash a series of rambling comments to reporters, including that there are only 15 cases in the U.S. and that it would soon be down to zero. Even in a crisis, he can't stop lying. The actual number is 60, not 15 four times as many as the president claimed. And the experts Trump brought with him stepped up to the podium to say there will be more cases. To use the word rambling to describe Trump's remarks yesterday is not a statement of opinion, but of fact. Quoting the undereducated leader of the free world, is this just like the flu because people die of the flu and this is very unusual. It is a little bit different, but in some ways it's easier. And in some ways it's easier and in some ways it's a little bit tougher. End quote. Even in this serious moment, reporters in the White House press briefing room broke out laughing at the absurdity. If the purpose of Trump's news conference was to put minds at ease, it had failed and achieved the opposite result. Trump also, in that news conference, named Vice President Mike Pence to lead the government's response to the spreading coronavirus. Alex Azar, the Health and Human Services Secretary who had said the virus was coming to America, will no longer do the talking. Mike Pence will take it from here. Alex found out about this along with the rest of it, hearing for the first time as he stood alongside Mike Pence just behind Donald Trump at that news conference. Alex Azar has now learned not to speak unless he's been told what to say first. The U.S. has a Surgeon General who would normally take the reins. We have not heard from Dr. Jerome Adams, however. With well over 80,000 cases and nearly 3,000 deaths in 47 countries, with the coronavirus epidemic threatening to become pandemic, the only things we have to fear are fear and the lack of preparedness. The position of global health security expert on the National Security Council has been vacant now for nearly two years. In 2018, Trump fired the entire pandemic response team, and today there is no chain of command for that response. Scientists have been summarily chased out of the Trump government. And as if crippling Obamacare weren't enough, the Trump administration's cut funding for both the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control. The CDC budget has been slashed by nearly 19%. He's even proposed deeper cuts for those agencies in his 2020 budget. The administration and a Republican Congress cut a billion dollars from the Prevention and Public Health Fund, which helps local health departments across the country. And Trump also wants to cut this country's contribution to the World Health Organization, which is on the front line of the coronavirus battle. Funding has been cut for our programs overseas to help prevent diseases from spreading to the U.S. On Monday, Trump's acting Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, Ken Cuccinelli, tweeted for help getting into the Johns Hopkins website so he could see the coronavirus outbreak map. That's your leadership at Homeland Security trying to figure out the Internet as we teeter on the edge of a pandemic. 
Against the stern advice of the Centers for Disease Control, Trump's State Department demanded last week that 328 Americans who'd been quarantined for weeks on a cruise ship in Japan be flown home. The State Department had promised that no one with the virus would be allowed to board the planes. But when 14 of those passengers tested positive just before boarding, the State Department rushed them onto the plane anyway, along with the 314 passengers who had tested negative. The infected passengers had no symptoms, so everyone boarded wearing surgical gloves and masks, and the 14 who'd tested positive were segregated into a part of the plane that had been cordoned off with tape and plastic sheeting. And bringing those 14 infected passengers back to the States would double, at the time, the number of known cases in the U.S., where that number does now stand at 60, nearly 45 of whom came from the quarantined Diamond Princess cruise ship docked in Japan. The CDC was opposed to bringing the 14 back to the U.S. and vehemently opposed putting them on a flight with hundreds of apparently healthy people. But even the CDC is not above reproach here. The test kits it sent earlier this month across the country had a faulty component, and that's why fewer than 500 Americans have been tested because of a shortage of test kits. Samples are being sent from across the country to Atlanta and just three other locations for testing delaying the few results we have. This means the U.S. may already have more cases than it knows. Without testing, we have no way of knowing how many cases there are in the United States. Other countries are testing. The U.S. is not. And what we don't know can hurt us. Trump was furious about the decision to fly those folks back and furious he hadn't been consulted. It was Trump, after all, who demanded during the 2014 Ebola crisis that Obama cancel all flights in and out of Africa, even for the American medical workers there trying to help. Keep them out of here, Trump tweeted in all caps with an exclamation point, adding, people that go to faraway places to help out are great, but must suffer the consequences. And yes, that line came with an exclamation point, too. Donald John Trump is a known germaphobe and now sees how a coronavirus epidemic can affect the stock market he was expecting to ride into re-election. Although Trump plays down this epidemic publicly with phrases like gone by April and it'll start working out, even he is not happy with his administration's slow and clumsy response to the threat. CNN reports that Trump's brave public face belies his real behind-the-scenes concerns. While Trump publicly claims the virus is, quote, going to go away, he sees what it can do to his re-election chances. A failed response and a crumbling economy are two things his re-election effort cannot afford. He was also beyond furious to hear about his administration's plans to quarantine some patients in a facility in Anniston, Alabama, even though experts insist it would not threaten the people who live nearby. That's when Trump stepped in to overrule that decision and reportedly did a lot of swearing and yelling and threatening to fire people. As with those 14 passengers, Trump wondered why he wasn't consulted, and although aides say he may not be serious, he has talked about firing some people over those decisions. He wants no more infected Americans to return to the U.S. He especially wants his stock market back, which may be why he plays down the threat, a claim that's undercut by a nearly 2,000-point drop in stock prices, wiping out all the gains of the past year. The coronavirus is very much under control in the USA, tweeted Donald Trump this week, adding, stock market starting to look very good to me, exclamation point. As the Washington Post reports, after that, Trump went back to tweeting about FBI surveillance, socialism, and Republican fundraising. A short time later, the CDC was telling Americans to brace themselves for disruptions in their lives, including business closures in the parts of the U.S. where the coronavirus will spread. Federal health officials warned that U.S. residents should prepare for significant disruption to their daily lives and to, quote, prepare for the expectation that this might be bad. Trump has asked Congress for nearly $2.5 billion to deal with the crisis. Nancy Pelosi says he should be asking for much more money. Yesterday, Trump said he'd take whatever Congress wants to give. With the art of the deal and the best people, what could possibly go wrong? What exactly should we expect? We don't know. This is all new. And what can we do to protect ourselves? Surgical gloves can get contaminated just like your hands, so skip the gloves. Wash your hands a lot. Use soap and warm water for at least 20 to 30 seconds, 
or use a hand sanitizer that's at least 60% alcohol. Alcohol kills coronavirus on contact, so it's good for disinfecting surfaces that can withstand it. Stay home if you're sick. Around others, cover your coughs and sneezes with the pit of your elbow. Throw tissues into the trash after just one use. If you have good reason to think you've been exposed to COVID-19, if you've traveled overseas, for instance, and now have symptoms, contact health professionals. And if you're going to a hospital, call first to let them know you're coming and why. You cannot get it from a person of Asian descent. That's not exposure. Avoid handshaking. Stay at least six feet away from people who cough or sneeze. And be prepared to cancel plans to be part of a big crowd if you live in an outbreak zone. Don't touch your eyes, nose, or mouth unless you've washed your hands by the instructions. Only people who are already sick need the face mask to keep their coughs and sneezes from scattering. Most masks will not protect against the virus. Most are just for dust. They'll keep in a sneeze, but they won't keep out the virus. Only an N95 surgical mask will help, and they're in short supply. U.S. hospitals have only 30 million of them on hand, and if there's an outbreak, medical workers will need 10 times that many, 300 million masks. Avoid cruises for now. Don't travel to countries with epidemics and be prepared to cancel domestic vacation trips if the virus begins to spread here in the U.S. Buy travel insurance just in case and keep up with the latest news. Get a flu shot. It won't protect you from coronavirus, but it can help protect against getting both at the same time and contracting pneumonia. This is especially true for the elderly who seem to be hardest hit by coronavirus. Getting flu shots also helps keep hospital beds free for coronavirus patients. If you have to stay inside, have a two-week supply of food and water and refill any prescriptions and over-the-counter medicines that are nearly due, like decongestants, ibuprofen, and acetaminophen. Make sure you have a 30-day supply of every medicine you might need. If you have pets, make sure they have a two-week supply of food and medicine. If you plan to run out and buy anything, make it these things not masks and gloves. And don't hoard. And above all else, don't panic. By the way, if people do travel for spring break this year, you're going to have long lines, says the president of the Union for TSA Workers. The Transportation Security Administration has slapped a temporary freeze on hiring and overtime as it tries to cover across-the-board cost-of-living raises. But the union says the hiring and overtime freeze could leave security checkpoints short-staffed. The fewer agents, the fewer open lines, the longer the lines. That's just the way it works, says the union chief. The TSA says the hiring freeze will be lifted in late April so the new hires can be trained in time for the summer travel season, presuming we have one should the coronavirus behave as predicted by the CDC. Welcome to the roller coaster that is 2020. Keep your hands inside the car and wash them. Salon.com's Bob Seska was among those watching Trump's self-contradicting coronavirus news conference yesterday and was disturbed by what he didn't hear. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. It sounds counterintuitive to say it, but Donald Trump isn't at his worst when he's tweeting or throwing a conniption fit during one of his pseudoephedrine-fueled performance art installments. No, Trump is at his very worst when he pretends to be president. To be clear, Trump has no idea how to be president, so he cobbles together vague impressions of the presidency based on what he wants to do for himself and what he sees on television, especially on Fox News Channel. Indeed, many of his worst deeds are manifested based on the miseducated false notion that all presidents have done what he does. Extorting military aid to cheat in the election, all presidents do that. All presidents abuse their power. All presidents go to war against the press. All presidents lock up immigrant children. It's an extraordinarily paranoid and cynical Roger Ailes-inspired view of the job, based on hyper-partisan fever dreams that aren't meant to educate viewers, but rather meant to deceive viewers, including Trump himself. Making matters more harrowing is that he's grossly incompetent, barely treading water at the adult end of the pool. I mean, he couldn't even keep his various Trump-branded projects like Trump Stakes or Trump University from failing badly. How can he possibly lead one of the world's biggest economies when he couldn't even make money on a casino, what with a license to practically print cash? 
He can't. And major disasters like Puerto Rico, not to mention both our volatile financial markets and our $1 trillion budget deficit, are several colossal indicators of his ineptitude. So whenever I see people complaining about his expensive golf habit, I say, more golf, please, and fewer attempts to govern. I'm fine letting my tax dollars go toward his golf outings, even if they enrich his own bank accounts, just as long as he's not wrapping his baby pink stumpy fingers around the levers of power. We all watched him hurl paper towels at hurricane victims when he wasn't wondering if he should launch nukes into the storms themselves. And we watched in stunned horror while he stood amid the charred rubble of the California fires, talking about raking the forests, whatever the hell that meant. On Wednesday, in advance of his press conference about the coronavirus, he couldn't even be bothered to correctly spell the name of the virus he's supposed to be dealing with. Now, in the face of this global pandemic, Trump needs to step away from the governing and leave the important issues to people who understand things like medicine, science, and the correct spelling of words. And no, that doesn't mean Ken Cuccinelli, his former point man on the pandemic. Ken Cuccinelli, the fire and brimstone former Virginia attorney general who's unnaturally obsessed with banning anal sex. One of the reasons why Trump designated Cuccinelli to run the coronavirus task force is because back in 2018, Trump fired the entire pandemic response chain of command, probably because they weren't sufficiently loyal to Trump and his brittle baby ego. While we're here, you might also recognize Cuccinelli from his Twitter account in which he asked his followers how to log into the Johns Hopkins website for its coronavirus map. Don't panic, though. The president who refers to hurricanes as water dumps is on the case now. Another indicator of Trump's incompetence was his press conference Wednesday evening. While desperately trying to downplay the threat of the virus to stop the financial markets from collapsing, the president announced that Mike Pence would be the new manager of the White House response to the pandemic, citing the Indiana model of health care. Uh, first, there is no Indiana model of health care. Second, Mike Pence, while governor, closed clinics and suspended needle exchanges, single-handedly manufacturing an HIV epidemic in that state. And this is the guy in charge of a worsening pandemic? Trump, meanwhile, blamed the market sell-offs on Monday and Tuesday on the Democratic debate that occurred Tuesday night after the sell-offs had already happened. The Democrats must have a hell of a time machine to pull off that one. And perhaps the most infuriating moment occurred when Trump said the National Institutes of Health should have a vaccine for the coronavirus soon. But the director of the NIH appeared seconds later and said the vaccine wouldn't be ready for another year and a half. Oh, and Trump never once said the word coronavirus, not once throughout his entire press conference. And there's no word whether that has something to do with the fact that he doesn't know how to spell it. Trump always makes things worse for Trump, and the best way to make things worse for the rest of us is to continue pretending as if he knows how to lead people through a crisis, which he doesn't, obviously. We can only hope he'll be humiliated at the ballot box this November before something happens that requires a real-life president. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. February 27th, Part 2. Paranoia Becomes Policy. Sixteen years before he won his electoral college victory, Donald Trump told a motivational seminar, Be Paranoid. You have to realize that people are very vicious, he said 20 years ago. You think we're so different, he asked, from the lions in the jungle? A lot of Trump supporters connect with that view. And quoting historian Richard Hofstadter, making Americans hate each other is a potent way to seize and secure power. One biographer wrote that Trump's father taught him that everything in life is a fight for power and that he needed to be a killer in that fight. That was Fred's word to his son Donald, killer. From an early age, Donald John Trump learned that people are either useful to him or that they are opposition that must be destroyed. Since childhood, he's been convinced he's surrounded by people he cannot trust. Since taking office, he's seen the career professionals in government as Obama holdovers, even though most had their jobs long before Obama was elected. Their truthful testimony in his impeachment led Trump to believe the government is full of leakers, snitches, and traitors. Since taking office, Trump has become even more convinced that people in general are out to get him. And just because he's paranoid doesn't mean he's wrong. 
The investigations into him, his businesses, and his presidency have only reinforced his beliefs. The impeachment is what moved him to purge the White House and government agencies of career professionals and to bring back loyalists like campaign aides Hope Hicks and Johnny McEntee. Johnny is 29 years old, and former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly saw Johnny McEntee as the last sort of person who should be advising Donald Trump. McEntee, a former college football quarterback, couldn't get a security clearance at the White House because he was considered financially compromised because of his extensive reported online gambling. So John Kelly fired McEntee and had him escorted off the White House grounds. Now it's John Kelly who's gone, and Johnny McEntee is back, along with Hope Hicks, who helped write the false narrative that Don Jr.'s Trump Tower meetings with the Russians during the campaign was about Americans adopting Russian babies. And scores of career professionals are gone. More than 50 of them pushed out of the White House just this month. Trump is even angry at some of his own appointees and the people who recommended them. Gordon Sondland and John Bolton, to name two people he appointed and then fired. Trump sees betrayal in Bolton, and he's angry at anyone who helped John Bolton while he was national security advisor. Trump this week said he intends to stop the publication of Bolton's book altogether, claiming that every word Bolton quotes him as saying is top-secret classified and should be withheld until after the 2020 election. At the same time, Trump says Bolton is, quote, just making things up. So which is it? Trump also calls Bolton a traitor, at least by his definition. I gave the guy a break, said Trump, and then he turns on me. In Trump's world, and now in our government... That's treason. The phone call that got him impeached for life prompted Trump to draw the wagons into an even tighter circle. Earlier this month, Trump complained to Geraldo's podcast audience the consequences of that call and the consequences of other government officials listening in on that call. The White House has already cut the number of people on the line in Trump's calls with foreign leaders. I may end the practice entirely, Trump told Geraldo. If he did it would end a decades-old practice that allowed experts to interpret the meanings of the calls, to write down any promise made by either leader, and to give a heads-up to the government agencies that might be affected. The paranoid Trump has disliked this practice from the very beginning of his presidency when transcripts of two calls were leaked to the Washington Post. The calls were with the leaders of Australia and Mexico, and both calls went very badly. Leakers, snitches, and traitors, oh my. It's at least one of the reasons Trump kicks his own aides out of talks with Russia's Vladimir Putin and orders the interpreters to tear up their notes. As reported here previously, Don Jr. tweeted after the impeachment trial that it was valuable in, quote, unearthing those who needed to be fired. In the days that followed, Trump Sr. fired two people who had testified in the impeachment inquiry and forced the resignation of a Justice Department official because they lacked an overriding loyalty to the paranoid man raised by Fred Trump. Paranoia has now become policy. Heads began to roll around Valentine's Day, Trump tweeting, we want bad people out of our government. At a staff meeting a week ago today, Trump's new personnel chief, the aforementioned Johnny McEntee, told officials from various agencies to expect some changes. Reporting directly to the president, McEntee ordered agency heads to help him find and fire those in government who are not on the Trump bandwagon. Being neutral or passive isn't an option. They all have to be fully supportive of this impeached president or they're gone. It's even more helpful if they think like him, reports the Washington Post. And if they are subpoenaed, they must not testify. Loyalty to duty and country were no longer the true criteria. Rather, loyalty to country had been redefined to mean loyalty to Trump. Quoting White House spokesman Hogan Gidley, the federal government is massive, and there are a lot of people out there taking action against this president, and when we find them, we will take appropriate action. A witch hunt, in the truest sense of the words, is underway in our government to root out any possible resistance to Trumpism. And no one is to be hired or promoted, says Johnny McEntee, without advance approval from him, especially when it comes to jobs at the State Department and the Pentagon. Resistors and never-Trumpers are to be turned in like criminals, and they will lose the careers that have put food on their tables for decades. Ever-helpful conservative groups outside government are putting together lists 
of those in government they believe to be unfaithful to the president. One of those outside groups is led by the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And yes, Democrats have been calling him to recuse himself from Trump's pending cases. And maybe Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, since they have Trump to thank for their jobs, which of course is ridiculous. Each of the justices were appointed by either Republican or Democratic presidents. If any were recused by association, we wouldn't have a nine-member Supreme Court. Johnny McEntee, meanwhile, will be combing through the personnel rosters of various agencies on the president's orders to push out political appointees who have not proven their loyalty. Civil servants are harder to fire than political appointees, but there are ways to transfer them out of the president's way. A loyalty purge is underway, his way or the highway. It is easily the biggest government purge of career professionals in our nation's history because paranoia is now policy. In addition to the White House itself, Trump's purge of professionals is focused on key parts of the executive branch, the intelligence community that found Russia had helped Trump's campaign, the Justice Department that investigated, and the State Department where diplomats who handled Russia and Ukraine followed rules and research instead of following Trump. Each of these departments have seen waves of resignations and reassignments. This past week, John Rood, R-O-O-D, John Rood was drummed out of his job leading White House policy for the Defense Department, which has also seen a few changes, as has the National Security Council. The State Department underwent a purge of top diplomats, including our ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, who had testified against Trump at the impeachment inquiry. And the Justice Department is, for Trump, now safely in the hands of William Barr. This week, Trump got even with the 17 intelligence agencies that agreed Russia had interfered in 2016 to help his campaign. He got even by getting complete and total control of those agencies. He appointed Richard Grinnell as the acting director of national intelligence, even though Grinnell has zero experience in intelligence work. Grinnell is there because he is a fierce Trump loyalist who may have proven it with his alleged involvement in the Ukraine scandal. Director of National Intelligence is a job once held by Dan Coats, who set up an election security effort. That will now likely be shut down by Richard Grinnell, who's there, not in the best interest of the country, but in the best interest of Donald Trump. Now we know how it came to pass that the inexperienced Grinnell would replace Joseph McGuire, who was the DNI between Dan Coats and Richard Grinnell. On February 13th, McGuire did something that angered the president. He met with members of the House Intelligence Committee to tell them that Russia was again interfering in a presidential campaign and in the 2020 primaries, just as it had done in 2016. Trump was furious when he heard about the briefing, but not for the right reasons. He was not angry that Russia was interfering, but because of what lawmakers had been told and furious that he hadn't been told until afterward. Trump called the 2020 conclusion of the intelligence agency's bull ass and cursed at the thought the Democrats would use this against him in his re-election bid. He was furious that Adam Schiff, of all people, was among those briefed by Joseph McGuire. The next day, McGuire was no longer the director of national security or even in the government. Enter Richard Grinnell. McGuire was described as despondent as he left. Republicans up and down the political food chain swear the intelligence agencies are wrong, that Russia's interfering, but only to divide Americans, not in Trump's favor. Republicans accused the 17 intelligence agencies for which McGuire had spoken of being politically biased. The career professionals in our intel community insist their work is nonpartisan. They insist that political bias and intelligence don't mix if you want the intelligence to be honest and accurate. It lifted Republican spirits to learn that in the 2020 Russian interference, Russia was once again backing Bernie Sanders in hopes of further dividing the moderate and progressive wings of the Democratic Party. Russia's main weapon, as it was in 2016, is social media, Facebook in particular, getting Americans to retweet inflammatory stuff planted by Russians makes Vladimir Putin smile. The fact that Facebook allows it makes Putin smile even more. And this year, according to the intelligence we got before Joe McGuire was fired, we learned that Russia is working from Internet servers here in the United States. 
Russia has also hacked into Iran's cyber warfare unit, allowing Russia to launch attacks that will appear to be coming from Iran. It isn't yet known if Russia will hack into our voting systems this year, but a key Russian goal is to undermine Americans' confidence in our election systems. Both the Democrats on the Intelligence Committee and the Republicans on that committee, including Devin Nunes, have asked to see the paperwork that led the intelligence community to report that Trump was once again getting help from Russia. It was Devin Nunes who got word to the president about what Joe McGuire had done. He was the squealer and even misled Trump into believing it was only Adam Schiff who got the briefing, making Trump even more angry. Considering the tension between the intel community and the intel committee, and throw in Trump loyalist Richard Grinnell as a go-between, it is much less likely the committee will ever see those papers. In fact, there's reasonable speculation that Grinnell is in the job of Director of National Intelligence for the primary purpose of blocking certain information from getting to the House Intelligence Committee. That should take care of those pesky reports about foreign influence, which was the greatest fear of our founding fathers. Any of that pesky nonpartisan intelligence will now be filtered for Trump by Richard Grinnell, at least until Trump can find someone he can get the Senate to confirm. That works for Trump, since neither one of them believe the intelligence agencies that Grinnell now oversees when it comes to Russian interference in our election. Grinnell doesn't consider Russian interference serious enough to be a national concern. He and Trump will get along just fine. And Grinnell now has two jobs, including his post as ambassador to Germany. Disappointing news for the Germans. And Joseph McGuire has no job for doing his job, speaking truth to power. Meanwhile, over at the National Security Council, Robert O'Brien is doing John Bolton's old job, but differently. The National Security Council was established at the start of the Cold War when everyone still agreed Russia was the enemy. Its reason for being has been to inform and advise presidents on national security decisions. Like the intelligence community, the NSC prided itself on being apolitical. These days, it's the other way around. These days, Trump and the people he trusts, like Robert O'Brien, tell the NSC what to think and how it's going to be. It's been that way since September when Robert O'Brien replaced John Bolton as our national security advisor. These days, O'Brien opens Security Council meetings by handing out printouts of Trump's tweets so everyone knows their assignment. Their assignments include implementing Trump's policy, but also to tell the rest of us why it's the best policy. Trump had had enough of the H.R. McMasters and even the John Boltons. The president's had enough of truth to power. Thank you very much. After nearly four years, Trump has finally gotten the national security advisor of his dreams, another complete loyalist who chats by phone with him several times a day. There's been a purge, too, at the National Security Council with nearly five dozen positions eliminated, where the man now in charge, Robert O'Brien, says he has seen no evidence that Russia is campaigning for Trump. But he says he has seen evidence that Moscow is backing Bernie Sanders much to the delight of the Trump campaign, which is eager to paint Sanders as a dangerous socialist. Like the intelligence community, the State Department, the Justice Department, and the Pentagon, the National Security Council had become a political weapon for Donald Trump. The news that Russia was working to help Sanders dropped the day before the Nevada caucuses, but it didn't seem to hurt him. Sanders responded, insisting Russia stay out of our elections, the opposite of Trump asking Russia to be involved in 2016 and asking Ukraine and China to be involved in 2020. The NSC's Robert O'Brien responded by saying Russia's work for Sanders was no surprise since he honeymooned in Moscow. But it's Trump, not Sanders, who's done more damage to our NATO alliances than Russia has managed in the past 20 years. It was Trump who would stand along Vladimir Putin and say he has no reason to think Russia had interfered in 2016. It was not Bernie Sanders who said that. But National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien was doing his job, as it is now defined by Donald Trump. Mostly that assignment is to keep Trump from hearing what he doesn't want to hear, even if that information is necessary to our security as a nation. But Trump liked hearing the news about Bernie Sanders. 
When we learned this week that U.S. intelligence sees Russia interfering in this year's election, we learned that Russia is again trying to divide Democrats the best way it knows how, through Bernie Sanders. It's 2016 all over again, with Russia promoting both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. In last year's Mueller report, there's a reference to Russia helping Sanders against Hillary Clinton. The Mueller report included quotes from documents from the Internet Research Agency, the Russian intelligence operation. One document read in part, use any opportunity to criticize Hillary and the rest except for Sanders and Trump. We support them. Let me be clear, to quote Bernie Sanders, we must not live in denial while allowing Russia and other state actors to undermine our democracy or divide us. That was in January, before the 2020 intelligence assessment came to light. This week, once the news was out about Sanders being Moscow's primary preference, he added this. My message to Putin is, stay out of American elections, and as president, I will make sure that you do. He called Vladimir Putin an autocratic thug. Again, welcome to the roller coaster that is 2020. Keep your hands inside the car and wash them. There's a new boss also at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C., where prosecutors pursued the criminal case against the president's longtime friend Roger Stone. Tim Shea arrived as the new boss and announced to the staff he wanted a more lenient sentencing recommendation in the Stone case, not the seven to nine years the prosecutors had already asked of the judge. The prosecutors were suspicious. They figured that since Tim Shea is a friend of his boss, William Barr, this was all about going easy on Trump's good friend. And suddenly, a prosecutor's office that had been independent of the DOJ was being run by Barr's friend, Tim Shea. Within 24 hours, the resignations began. The crisis in the Justice Department was coming to a head. A handful of career prosecutors worried their reputation for independence from politics would be ruined were calling it quits. Yes, there has been high drama in almost every major executive branch department since the impeachment acquittal, but nowhere so much as in the Justice Department and the whole thing ended rather oddly. Trump raised Kane about the coming sentence for Roger Stone. His attorney general recommended a lighter sentence than the one prosecutors had agreed upon. There was a back and forth between Barr and Trump about interfering with the work of the Justice Department, but it was mostly for show to boost the sagging morale at DOJ. In the end, the prosecutors who replaced the ones who'd quit carried to court that request for the lighter sentence for Stone, but what they said to the judge on sentencing day was a third and unexpected thing. Despite what it said on their court papers, the new prosecutors told Judge Amy Berman Jackson they wanted her to decide Roger Stone's fate without a recommendation from them. They threw up their hands and threw the government's case to the mercy of the court. Stone's lawyers were asking for just probation for his federal felonies of tampering with a witness and lying to Congress. And then the judge handed down that long-awaited sentence. Roger Stone would go to federal prison for three years, four months. By choosing to sentence Stone at the low end of the sentencing spectrum for his crimes, the judge tried to avoid an appeal and, for that matter, a presidential pardon for Stone, while still making sure that Stone did prison time. So, had all this drama been for nothing? The government's sentencing recommendation for Roger Stone had gone from high to low to no recommendation at all? If Trump had sent in William Barr to control his prosecutors, it wasn't working. Still determined to intimidate the judge into granting Stone a new trial, Trump called one of the jurors and the judge totally biased. Still ignoring Barr's advice to shut up, Trump was again trying to orchestrate justice via Twitter. Judge Jackson does not seem intimidated, however, indicating she's likely to deny the new trial that Roger Stone has requested. Last week, she denied Stone's request that she recuse herself from the case. She called that motion, quote, nothing more than an attempt to use the court's docket to disseminate a statement for public consumption that has the words judge and biased in it. But Roger Stone continued to angle for a pardon, and Trump continued to toy with the idea. As Stone was headed for jail, Trump was speaking to a group of convicts working their ways back into society. We had a lot of dirty cops, he told the ex-convicts. I love the FBI, he said, but adding, but the people at the top were dirty cops. 
A lot of bad things are happening, said Trump, with his usual non-specific style, and we're cleaning it out, he said. Referring to Stone, Trump told his Las Vegas audience, what happened to him is unbelievable. They say he lied, said Trump, but adding, but other people lie too. And it was back to the whataboutism. Quoting Trump, Comey lied, McCabe lied, Lisa Page lied, her lover Peter Strzok lied. That's a quote. Trump is certain Roger Stone never intimidated a witness because, quoting the president, it's not like the tampering I see on television when you watch a movie. That's called tampering with guns to people's heads and a lot of other things. Still angling for a pardon, Stone has failed in his demand for a new trial and in asking that the judge who'd sentenced him remove herself from the case. And now that he's positioned to make the federal government more in his own image, Trump seems to have his eye also on the United States Supreme Court. Trump made time to watch Fox News during his state visit to India. It was from there that he tweeted that Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg should recuse themselves on all Trump and Trump-related matters. Trump has no power to make this happen, and neither justice will take his advice. But it's more than worth noting that Trump wants control of the Supreme Court, whether he can get it or not. Trump dislikes Ginsburg and Sotomayor not just because they're considered liberals, but because it's personal. During the 2016 campaign, Ginsburg called Trump a faker on CNN and told the New York Times, quote, I can't imagine what the country would be like with Donald Trump as our president. She no longer needs to try to imagine that. She's living it like the rest of us. But she quickly walked back her remarks, calling them ill-advised. What set Trump off was the written dissent of Justice Sotomayor, in which she called out the Trump administration for routinely asking for emergency rulings to get a policy implemented more quickly and for skipping all the other courts and appeals that normally precede a Supreme Court case. Sotomayor suspects the administration wants to leapfrog the lower courts to avoid any pesky opposition to policy. She's also called out her fellow justices for the court's decisions that she believes were decided by politics. Trump didn't like Sotomayor's dissent, but then he dislikes any dissent directed at him. If only the highest court in the land could be more loyal to Donald Trump, like the rest of the government. His income tax case comes up before the Supreme Court next month, along with cases about his immigration and health care policies. While Trump pokes and prods at the United States Supreme Court, it has been ruling in his favor. This past week, it greenlighted the administration's new wealth test that makes it easier to deny immigrants admission to the U.S. or residency here if it appears they might wind up on a public assistance program. As a matter of policy, we are no longer the nation that keeps its promise on the Statue of Liberty to give us your tired, your poor. The Supreme Court did not explain why it okayed Trump's plan because it usually doesn't in cases brought by the White House for emergency rulings. The court made its ruling last Friday. The new policy went into effect on Monday of this week. It was this ruling that prompted Justice Sonia Sotomayor to write her dissent saying, quote, it is hard to say what is more troubling, that the government would seek this extraordinary relief seemingly as a matter of course or that the court would grant it. That is the dissent that set off Trump, demanding she and Justice Ginsburg recuse themselves from all his cases. That is the dissent that he heard about on Fox News, but never actually read, as it became apparent in a news conference after his Supreme Court Twitter rant. Lower courts are ruling in Trump's favor as well when it comes to his anti-immigration policies. Yesterday, a federal appeals court ruled the Trump administration can withhold money from sanctuary cities and states, including New York City, New York State, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Virginia, Rhode Island, and the state of Washington. To get back the federal funding they will lose over this, the sanctuary jurisdictions would have to give immigration officials access to their jails and release no undocumented prisoner without notifying Homeland Security, no matter how small the offense. Nearly a year ago, a different federal appeals court ruled against Trump and in favor of the sanctuary city of Chicago. A 51-year-old Milwaukee man who'd just been fired by the Molson Coors Company used a gun and a silencer 
to kill five of his former fellow employees before turning the gun on himself yesterday. It was the latest in a series of mass killings in workplaces in the U.S. A year ago, a fired employee from a suburban Chicago factory also killed five workers. And last summer in Virginia Beach, a city worker who had quit went on a gun spree and killed a dozen people. In Milwaukee, families of the latest victims are still being informed about the fates of their loved ones today. Saturday brings us the South Carolina primary, a crucial test for several Democratic candidates. Next week brings us Super Tuesday, when 14 more states weigh in all on the same day. Gay Mormons kissing, remembering the cut-and-paste guy, and the legend of Jessica Boomershine in the final segment after this. This is not a commercial because there are no sponsors here and no corporations. But there are a variety of expenses related to the production of these programs. So, although this newscast is free to you, it's not free to make. And if you'd like to help in this effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button in the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Some very kind listeners schedule a monthly payment. There are a lot of great books about what's going on in the world right now. And there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up blocker to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and very helpful to do so. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, however you do it, thank you. Students at Brigham Young University gathered at the statue of their school's founder last week to kiss. Women were kissing women and men were kissing men. They were celebrating BYU's decision to drop its longtime ban on homosexual behavior. Hugging, cuddling, holding hands, and even kissing were now okay for everyone, not just heterosexuals. But there's also been confusion about the rules change, with many of BYU's gay and lesbian students wondering if they might still get caught up in the school's so-called honor code. The church still considers gay marriage a serious transgression, but does allow gay and lesbian couples to have their children baptized. Hence the confusion on the BYU campus about the rule going away and the honor code staying put. But as one student described his understanding of the new rule, if a straight person wouldn't get in trouble for it, neither will you. As Americans have worried less about jobs and the economy in recent years, they've worried more about the environment and climate change. A new survey by the Pew Research Center, which has been asking this question for 20 years, shows that nearly two-thirds of Americans rank the environment as top priority, a higher priority than jobs. That's up 14% from where it was just four years ago. Trump administration policies against the environment and for fossil fuels are likely part of the reason. The subject of climate change is also, like everything else, it seems, divided sharply along party lines. While only a third of Democrats saw global warming as a priority in 2012, by 2020, it was 75% of Democrats. Republican prioritization of climate change has barely ticked upward in that time and has mostly remained flat for the past 12 years at fewer than one in four, calling it a priority. 62% of Republicans, though, do want the U.S. to pursue alternate energy sources compared to 90% of Democrats. But even with those majorities, Republicans are likely to keep voting for candidates who prefer Trump's approach over environmentalists and climate scientists. The continuation of climate change denial, meanwhile, is being fed online by bots. The Guardian found what it called stunning levels of bot activity on Twitter aimed at promoting the denial of climate science. There was a surge of such disinformation around the time Trump announced the U.S. would pull out of the Paris Climate Accord. During that period, one in every four tweets about the planet's climate came from bots. Nearly one in three of them were about the big oil company Exxon. Trump has called the climate crisis a hoax, and because he's Trump, he's also called it bullshit. And the president's on Twitter a lot, or he's watching Fox News, or both. And although climate change was mentioned in Wednesday night's god-awful Democratic candidates debate, it never became a topic that night because the in-over-their-heads moderators never asked about it. They did, however, ask about a tax on soda pop. 
Katherine Johnson, the NASA mathematician made famous in the movie Hidden Figures, has died this week at the age of 101. It was the brain of a woman named Katherine Johnson that made possible the first landing of a man on the moon. Paid little more than the janitors, Ms. Johnson and other African-American women were segregated from the white male mathematicians whose work the women were assigned to check. There were no computers or electronic calculators in the 1950s when Catherine went to work at NASA. She used slide rules and mechanical calculators to check the work of her superiors. While the white male astronauts got the glory, Catherine and other math wizards worked behind the scenes and off to one side, making sure those men got to the moon and back safely. She wasn't even allowed to put her name on the reports that she wrote, including the one that gave us a perfect moon landing. Her incredible work paved the way for other African Americans and for women at NASA. It will be her mathematical models that will land men on Mars, should we in fact go there. In 2015, President Obama awarded Ms. Johnson the Medal of Freedom, once our highest civilian honor, until it went this year to radio performer Rush Limbaugh. After the movie Hidden Figures won an Oscar, she said, There's nothing to it. I was just doing my job. Katherine Johnson died this week at age 101. A prime number, by the way. We also lost this week Lawrence Tesler. He's the guy who made it a whole lot easier for humans to interact with computers. Tesler invented cut and paste and drag and drop. Can you imagine working on a computer without those things? In the early part of his career, Tesler worked for Steve Jobs at Apple, but it was his work at Xerox later where he taught computer mice to do tricks. In the late 60s, he taught a class called How to End the IBM Monopoly, and he took part in anti-war demonstrations. When the CIA showed up at Xerox for a meeting, Tesla arrived at the meeting wearing a trench coat and a fedora, so you might say he even dabbled in spyware. Lawrence Tesla, a heralded pioneer, is gone at 74 from complications that followed a bicycle accident. 53-year-old Dagmar Turner plays the violin, and she played it recently for her surgeon while he removed a tumor from her brain. The doctor was mapping parts of her brain that are active when she plays, as well as the areas controlling her speech and motor function. He had her play the violin to make sure he wouldn't damage any of those crucial regions of Dagmar's brain. Brain surgeons often wake patients during such surgeries to make sure they do no harm, but this may be the first case of also looking to protect a patient's musical talent. At least 27 people now have accused opera singer-superstar Placido Domingo of sexual misconduct. The accusation comes from an American opera union. It's led to the cancellation of an upcoming performance in Madrid, but Domingo is still welcome at the Israeli opera. Domingo has apologized, sort of, saying he was merely being flirtatious. The women say he flirted, using his unwelcome hands. 67-year-old former movie mogul Harvey Weinstein faces sentencing on March 11th after being convicted in New York for rape and a first-degree criminal sex act, namely forcing oral sex on an aspiring actress. Calling themselves the Silence Breakers, the six women who stepped up to testify against Weinstein are being hailed as heroes. The judge ordered that the Oscar-winning producer be taken directly to jail, bail denied. He faces up to 30 years in prison in New York. Now he faces criminal sex charges in Los Angeles, where prosecutors have been investigating eight more allegations. Weinstein, who produced Pulp Fiction, Goodwill Hunting, Kill Bill, and the first Lord of the Rings, and donated to Democratic candidates, has now been called one of the most prolific serial rapists in recorded history. Can we get gone with the wind back, please, whined the 73-year-old President Trump? Gone with the wind won Best Picture in 1940, six years before the president was born. He also mentioned Sunset Boulevard, a black-and-white classic that did not win Best Picture when Trump was four years old. Trump was at one of his rallies last week after the subtitled South Korean movie Parasite had won four Oscars, including Best Picture, after winning a Golden Globe Award. This week, it's still in the top ten at theaters. Trump admitted to the Red Hats he has no idea if the film's any good. I don't know, he said. 
but it was the first foreign language film to win Oscar's Best Picture Award, and Trump knew that wouldn't set well with his audience, so he exploited it in case it might help fire them up. What the hell was that all about, Trump bemoaned to the crowd. We got enough problems with South Korea with trade. On top of it, they give it Best Movie of the Year. Many suspect Trump was also put off by the subtitles. The producers of Parasite responded, saying it makes perfect sense. Trump hadn't seen the picture since, quoting them, he can't read. Not much need for subtitles, or even ears for that matter, for Sonic the Hedgehog's movie, number one again this week with an additional $26 million in ticket sales. But Harrison Ford's Call of the Wild is a close second with $25 million. For all the movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. No cutting and pasting necessary. Who says money can't buy friends? HBO just did, signing the entire original cast of Friends for a reunion special that will only be available on HBO's new pay TV service app, HBO Max. Jennifer Aniston first publicly hinted at the reunion on The Ellen Show back in October, saying, we're working on something, but we don't know what that something is. In mid-January, HBO called it a maybe. Aniston will be joined by David Schwimmer, Courtney Cox, Matthew Perry, Lisa Kudrow, and Matt LeBlanc for the special to be shot on stage 24 at Warner Brothers Burbank, where the series was filmed for 10 seasons. The reruns will be moving now from Netflix and TBS when HBO Max launches in May. The working title for the special is The One Where They Get Back Together. A bin full of bras. As if Victoria's Secret hasn't had enough trouble, falling out of favor during the Me Too movement, accused of bullying its models, disgraced by its CEO's affiliation with the now-dead child sex predator Jeffrey Epstein, and its refusal to include transgender models, and now this. Outside of Victoria's Secret in Colorado, hundreds of the company's bras were found in a dumpster. That discovery comes at a time when the fashion industry is already under fire for its outlandish waste. The discovery was made by a woman who lives upstairs from a recently closed Victoria's Secret. She would have rather seen the bras go to a shelter for homeless or abused women. We are sorry for how this may appear, says a spokesman for the languishing lingerie company, adding... Because this store was closing, we wrote off sample products, including bras from our fitting rooms. She says all the other inventory went to other stores. The Jimmy John sandwich empire got a beatdown this week from the Food and Drug Administration. The FDA says the chain's been selling adulterated produce in its sandwiches, produce contaminated with E. coli and salmonella, including the sprouts and the cucumbers. We'll let the FDA's deputy commissioner say it. Jimmy John's restaurants have been implicated in multiple outbreaks that have spanned seven years and impacted consumers in no fewer than 17 states. He goes on. Jimmy John's has not demonstrated implementation of long-term sustainable corrections to its supply chain to assure the safety of ingredients, end quote. The chain says food safety is its top priority, and it's taken the sprouts off the menu. The FDA has given Jimmy John's 15 days to, quote, address this violation. You may have heard stories before about people picking up radio signals in their dental fillings or their refrigerators. Two years ago, we had the report of a man whose all-metal electric fan played a radio station while the fan was turned off. This is a new one. A nine-year-old girl in Lockport, Illinois, has throughout her childhood been listening to a radio station out of one wall of her bedroom. This wall of sound has been traced to Salem Media's Christian station there, 1160 on your AM dial. The station sent its chief engineer to the Smith home, and he confirmed, sure enough, that is his radio station. What he could not explain is how the radio signal being picked up by the wiring in the wall got converted back into audio. If the wires are the tuning coils, then what, he wondered, is acting as the speaker? Apparently, Christian radio works in mysterious ways. The closing theme today is pets and people in all the wrong places. Tennessee, a dog is found trapped at the bottom of a meat processing plant 12 feet under the grinder from which the meat falls. Despite the steady food supply, the dog was exhausted from trying to escape.
McGregor, as he's been named, was taken to Memphis Animal Services, where he'll soon be available for adoption. Our source didn't have the breed of the dog, but if it helps, it was found in a pit. Arkansas. A woman crawled through more than 30 yards of storm drain to rescue her cat, Olaf, who had been down there for a day. Fort Smith firefighters said they had been unable to reach the kitty. That's when the woman took matters into her own hands, opened a manhole, dropped in, and started crawling. She crawled for 30 yards to get the cat and another 30 yards back where she and the cat got help climbing out of the manhole. California. A paraglider in training was trying to land at the small Yuba County Airport and missed the mark. The Olivehurst Fire Department had to rescue him from some high power lines. The paraglider was not electrocuted since he was not grounded and no electricity passed through his body. To make sure they weren't electrocuted, the fire department persuaded Pacific Gas and Electric to shut off the juice until the rescue was over. And finally, it was at a casino outside Dayton, Ohio, where 42-year-old Jessica and her co-defendant met an 85-year-old man. They followed the man back to his home, where they broke in and robbed him. They stole his gun, made him give them the PIN number for his ATM card, took money out of his account, and then left the old man in the trunk of his car, which they abandoned near a trash dump. The man was never seriously physically harmed. But for it all, Jessica and her co-defendant were arrested, tried, convicted, and sent to jail. A month went by. This week, security video from the jail gave us this kicker story, and the video proves this is not made up. The video shows Jessica climbing up the wall of a holding room while other inmates looked on in amazement. Near the top, she goes out of frame and vanishes. Cut to a different camera that shows crumbled ceiling tiles falling through the shot, followed by a pair of dangling legs, Jessica's legs. Jail guards spotted her immediately, each taking a leg, pulling Jessica out of the ceiling. Whereupon, she falls headfirst into a trash can, which then tips over. She, too, avoided serious injury, just humiliation on video. No comment is the response from the poor defense attorney who represents Jessica, Jessica Boomershine. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.